Hi guys, welcome to the May 1st ASF Weekly Science Podcast where today we're going to talk openly about sperm and also how to measure intellectual disability. Nobody likes talking about sperm or eggs less than I do, but let's start with that sperm study. It's using the early cohort or the early risk longitudinal autism investigation. Here they find some interesting tidbits. Now, the early study is a study that followed pregnancies of families who had a high likelihood of having a second child with a diagnosis. That high likelihood is about 20%. Why do they have a high likelihood? Because they already have a child on the spectrum. If they got pregnant again and were enrolled in early after that first diagnosis, and it could be for a second, third, or fourth child, they enrolled them in the study and followed the families through the diagnosis. They collect a lot of stuff from moms. For example, multiple blood draws during pregnancy, the placenta, urine from the mom, more blood, and blood. They also collected meconium from the infants, and they did something where they collected sperm from fathers. Why sperm? Well, sperm is half of what creates the embryo that develops as a child. And I can guarantee you it's a lot easier to collect sperm than it is to get an egg. If you want an egg, it's a pretty invasive procedure which involves a lot of injections and a general sedation. You want sperm? That's not invasive at all. So families who participated in early were asked to provide sperm as close to possible from the date of conception of that second, third, or fourth child. Again, some parents enrolled in the study earlier on in the pregnancy than others. So it was as close as possible. Now, let's face it, mothers do most of the work during pregnancies, but fathers were able to provide a sperm sample. So thank you for that. And if you were a father and heavily involved in the study, thank you. I apologize, but it's normally women who do most of the work here. Anyway, they collected the sperm as closely as possible to that second, third, or fourth pregnancy that subsequent one, as fast as they could. So we're thinking that the sperm data applies to the subsequent pregnancy, not the original child with autism. They also collected phenotype data on the dads and, of course, the mom and the child who participated in early. So again, they, they didn't tie this to the original child with the diagnosis, but the later pregnancy but we get to find out their autism diagnosis and any autism characteristics because they're followed to three years. You'd think maybe with sperm, what were they, what on earth were they looking at? Motility, shape, what? They weren't looking at, what they weren't looking at was genetics. They were looking at the methylation of the genes. If you've ever heard me talk about epigenetics, you know that genes are the piano and genetics are the player of the piano. So genes, which are the piano can get methylated by the player. That means they get turned off. This can happen during gestation, and it means that critical activity needed for axon guidance and development of neurons and markers on neurons are changed by methylation. It's not necessarily bad or good. A lot of things are changed during methylation during the course of normal embryogenesis and development. So what they did is they looked at different regions and if they were methylated, They found that methylation changes on the sperm were significantly associated with those child SRS scores in that pregnancy closest to which they donated the sperm. 
Many of those methylations in the genome were on genes implicated for autism and neurodevelopment. We know this because they've been described in many, many other papers. They include those 100 plus genes that have been reported elsewhere. Some of the child SRS scores associated with methylation were similarly associated with the paternal SRS scores. Some were distinctly associated with either the SRS score from the older sibling. So in other words, the parent SRS scores didn't always match the child SRS scores. They were somewhat independent. They further demonstrated that the methylated regions associated with those child SRS scores contained methylation that were also found to be methylated in multiple brain regions from a different study. So just to reassure you, they didn't collect the brains of these three-year-olds. They used a set of methylation genes that were found in a completely different study. They found that the methylation associated with those child scores were the same as in this other postmortem brain tissue. So that's why postmortem brain tissue is so important. It can provide a guide about what genes and processes are penultimate in understanding autism. So together, all of these data compiled presents a compelling support for the association between epigenetics and autism. It's not all about the genes in autism. It can also be about changes in DNA modifications, methyl groups that may influence an outcome. Genetic signals associated with neuropsychiatric traits have previously been shown to be modified through epigenetics. Epigenetics is also influenced by the environment. So modifications of the DNA, either through the mom's eggs or the dad's sperm, is of course important to understand, especially when you think about these de novo mutations, which can be so harmful. There were also some differentially modified regions that were associated with, with outcome, like the father score on social communication, which also brings in the possibility of heritable modifications of DNA. Not just the strand of the DNA, but the modification itself. That can also be inherited. Anyway, that's all we have to say about sperm this week. Another important cohort called SPARC, you all know about SPARC for autism, called on families to understand the role of parents and how they can interpret cognitive ability in their kids. You know SPARC is this large-scale study which collects behavioral information as well as DNA through SPIT to this large database funded by the Simons Foundation, which now includes hundreds of thousands of individuals and hundreds of thousands of more samples. My family's is one of them. But there's a limit on what they co can collect using kind of this large online model. For example, some families had in-depth information on cognitive ability already, others do not. Mine does, but that doesn't mean everybody does. And because there are hundreds of thousands of people in this study, nobody can expect that everyone has had the same access to the same in-person IQ measurements as everyone else. Also, these IQ measurements can be dependent on age. Now, why wouldn't you get them? Well, they take a long time and they usually have to be done in person. So this isn't even something that Spark could do. They're really important when you're analyzing presentations of autism because it allows researchers, clinicians, and even support individuals to identify 
differentiating behavioral features of both autism and intellectual disability, and because there's a lot of overlap. The administration of these tests to measure intellectual ability or cognitive ability can require a lot of time and money, as I already said. Some of the records of cognitive assessment aren't always available to families or researchers, and they're usually, again, administered in person. That wasn't happening during COVID. It's really important. So Spark looked at how else it could be collected besides these in-person long tests. So what they did is they took a sample of about 2,000 who had diagnostic evaluations from clinics and 1,500 of them had parent reported information and clinical evaluation of cognitive abilities. The idea was, did they match up the parent report and the clinician report? Well, it's a complicated answer, isn't it always? So if your child had no intellectual disability, you were more likely to report no cognitive impairment. That makes sense. Your child has a normal cognitive function, you report a normal cognitive function. But if your child had an intellectual disability, a parent was more likely to overestimate the score and underestimate the cognitive disability. This means that parents sometimes misrepresent an intellectual disability, but that's unintentional. It's a problem if you're relying on parent reports in an IEP. So they misestimated the impairment if it was a low IQ. But overall, if it was a normal to a high IQ, parents are pretty good at figuring it out. This also depended on the age and the autism symptoms. Among children over five, the agreement between parent-reported cognitive level and standardized measures was significantly higher than the agreement if the kids were under five. Also, adaptive skills measured by the Vineland were associated with parent estimates of cognitive level. If they had more adaptive skills and higher autistic traits, they were less likely to report their child's intellectual disability accurately. What does this mean? Well, all in all, parents may be more likely to overestimate their child's cognitive level if their child is younger, had a lower IQ, or better adaptive skills. Sometimes parents' estimates are influenced by the hesitancy to label children as intellectually disabled until after five. As children age, it may be clear that they're not keeping up with their age-expected developmental milestones. But really, all in all, again, there were some caveats. Parents can measure or report their child's intellectual ability pretty well. So what does this podcast mean this week? First, sperm are important, not just the eggs and understanding the likelihood of an autism diagnosis and the degree of autism traits. Stop with the idea that it's all about the eggs and the mothers and mother's pregnancy and mother's fault. Father's sperm has an influence. Second, parents can be good indicators of their child's intellectual ability. But if they're impaired, they tend to overestimate their abilities and it's related to severity of symptoms meaning parents want their child's IQ to be higher than it is, or they really aren't good at at measuring it if it's really, really, really low, but so are clinicians. They don't want to label their kids with low IQ at young ages because they know that it changes over time, but they can relate the IQ estimates to autism symptoms. So clinicians keep listening to parents and keep these things in mind. Ask parents about their child's developmental levels, but keep in mind they might not be as high as they think, or they may be even better. 
It's still important for a clinician to gather info on cognitive ability. Parents are pretty good, but it shouldn't be the be-all, end-all. And parents are important reporters of cognitive ability, but some things need to be kept in mind if studies are going to collect from parents and want to avoid a costly and time-consuming IQ assessment. I'm all for these assessments, but sometimes it can't be possible. The larger the numbers in a study, the smaller probability that families will get hours and hours and hours of testing. The study also acknowledged that the IQ and everyday functioning may not be totally equal. IQ measured may not capture young children with unique developmental profiles like those who are non-speaking or those from culturally diverse communities. So parents may be perceiving splinter skills that may not be captured by IQ tests. What is cognitive ability and how it can be captured? Oh my, my Lanta, that's another podcast altogether. But now you know why parents are used as proxies for developmental abilities. Friends, I'm hoping to give you a podcast next week. I will be in Sweden for the International Society for Autism Research, and I know that there will be lots of good studies presented. I'm going to try and do it. If I can't get to it, don't hate me. Just look forward to the May 15th podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.